This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special return guest to the podcast. His name is Jack Carr. So Jack is a retired Navy SEAL. He spent 20 years in Naval Special Warfare. He transitioned from an enlisted SEAL sniper to a junior officer leading assault and sniper teams in Iraq and Afghanistan to a platoon commander practicing counterinsurgency in the southern Philippines to commanding a special operations task unit in the most Iranian-influenced section of southern Iraq throughout the tumultuous drawdown of U.S. forces. So this guy has seen everything you could possibly see overseas. But then after he got out of the military... He became a number one New York Times bestselling fiction thriller writer. And it's just been an absolute incredible thing to see how he's grown from the time of the very first novel all the way to today with the fifth release. But he's the writer of the thriller series with James Reese as the the central character. So those books would include books that you've heard of, The Terminal List, True Believer, Savage Son, The Devil's Hand, and his newest book that is out now if you're listening to this on time. This is the fifth novel in the series. It's called In the Blood. And guys, we're so excited to have him on this podcast because he goes on podcasts and he's such a you know nice guy and he, he answers any question and you know we talk about the book and we talk about the upcoming series with Chris Pratt that's going to be on Amazon Prime Video it's called the ter- Terminal List it's an eight uh, see, or eight episode series and it's going to be an awesome thing we get into all that stuff so if you like Jack Carr novels if you like the stuff that he's spinning off and doing for television you're going to love this interview but beyond that I, I told him off air and he was totally cool with it and he was excited about it. I was like, dude, I want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff that doesn't have to do with your writing as well. So we get into his thoughts on the drawdown of troops from Afghanistan and the pullout from Afghanistan because I wanted to talk about that uh, with him last summer, but we just couldn't really work out the schedule. So we got to talk about that. We got to talk about Ukraine. We got to talk about just understanding history in general and why a lot of men don't read and we don't read history and then we're shocked when certain things happen. And then we get into his podcast. We get into some things about how a lot of our politicians are trying to take away our rights to defend ourselves while at the same time being defended 24 seven. And then we do a really, really fun. What would you say to someone that said there at the end of the podcast? And we even expanded on some of the lightning round questions and got a few bonus ones in there at the end. But guys, I absolutely enjoyed my time with Jack Carr. I hope you do as well. And I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Jack Carr, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you. Hey, I was just telling you off air, you always have a different background and it's cooler than the one beforehand. So where are we at right now? Are you in your lair? Yeah, so I'm in a, in the house and this room is eventually going to turn into the library because uh, the books, they've been stacking up for about the last 40 years. 
and uh, I need a place to organize them a little more efficiently. So the podcast studio is going to move outside to its own dedicated space, and then this will turn into the library. So this is a temporary podcast studio for for mine. So there's my there's the mic right there. Got all my equipment over here, lights and cameras and all that sort of thing. But uh, all that's going to go outside and get upgraded to uh, to when the new studio is done here, hopefully soon. That's awesome. It's so funny because like I've always been a digital book guy, but now, especially from publishers, I'm getting a lot of books sent to me. So I'm like, holy crap, I have this problem that like Jack Carr has now and Stephen Pressfield has now. It's like, where do I put all of these books? But we're going to launch in today because we got to talk about your new book. We got to talk about the Amazon series. We're going to get into all that. But there are several things that are happening kind of on the world front or have happened on the world front that I've wanted to talk to you about, but I figured we'd wait until we, we got you on air. Around the time that Afghanistan was falling last summer, I had a bunch of people that have been on the show before come back on to do little mini episodes, you know, 10, 15 minute episodes, just to give their overall thoughts. A lot of these people were veterans. There were some gold star wives. There were some people that had, you know, served over there in kind of a, uh, I had a journalist over there that had actually served and she was, or she was over there whenever it was falling. We'll put it that way. So Holly McKay, she was there in the towns when Afghanistan was falling to the Taliban when they were riding through the streets on motorcycles, shooting their AKs in the air. And so a lot of people gave their opinions. We weren't able to get you on during that time period because it was absolutely crazy for you. You're on deadline for the new book. But I just want to kind of give you some space here because you've now had close to a year to reflect on how the United States government and military pulled out of that area, the vacuum of power it created that was filled by the Taliban and by China and by some other forces. So so just give me whatever thoughts that you want to share with us on the situation that happened with us pulling out of Afghanistan. Yeah, they're very similar, if not exactly the same as they were in the lead up and uh, during the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I captured those in a couple op-eds at the time. And, uh, you know, there, you always when you write an op-ed at the time, something is happening. Yes, yes, it's timely. But at the same time, there's a lot of emotion in there. But that emotion hasn't hasn't changed over the last few months. It's not like I uh, took a breath and uh, I mean, I have taken many, but it's not like I took a breath at that situation and shifted how I felt about it, uh, having watched it uh, devolve and see us rush to our death at the end, essentially, quite literally for 13 Americans and not not even including the ones that are missing arms and legs and can't walk anymore uh, because we gave up Bagram and went down to, uh, into, uh, to uh, Kabul to leave from that airfield and give up a strategically advantageous position to go to a uh, to, well a tactically advantageous position to go to a tactically disadvantageous position right. um, and troops in, in harm's way I just can't I just and why so many people had a problem with that is because you don't need to be a student of military history you don't need to have ever served in the military you don't need to be a strategist uh, you don't need to have have any touch points with the military at all to just look at what was happening and say hey why do we put our troops down there when we had this Base with base with standoff distance all around it that we owned in uh, uh, at Bagram, and it goes back to what Carl uh, McClashwitz called uh, the most important attribute of a battlefield leader, which is common sense. Uh, so anybody could look at what was going on and apply some common sense to it and realize, hey, things should have been done differently. And they were saying this in the time. It's not like you have uh, the benefit of hindsight to go back and say, oh, you know what. Uh, we really should have done this. I mean, it was so obvious at the time, which is why so many people were so upset about it, particularly uh, veterans. Um, but yeah, it's just so painful to see um, unforced errors. Twenty years spent. We have twenty years to prepare for that moment, essentially, and mm-hmm. then this is the best that our senior leaders can do. Senior leaders who continued to fail up 
time and time again over that 20 year period. You can go back and look at any of their testimony before Congress and take off the date and they all say pretty much the same thing. We're making strides. Right. All we need is uh, some more money, some more resources, some more troops, uh, or shift our focus to uh, from to drugs, to the, the ring road, to whatever, to counterinsurgency, to this, to that. And they all just needed more troops, more time, more resources. resources. We were doing, we were making great strides with host nation forces, training them up. They all sound exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that you can juxtapose that now with interviews those same people gave coming back from Afghanistan over the years that are now published in the Afghanistan papers, and they are 180 out from one another, what they really thought and what they said. So essentially they lied to the American people, they lied to Congress, they lied to their troops. And those same people have never been held accountable. Uh, at the tactical level, anybody who served in the military knows if we screw up on target, you're gonna be held accountable. You're gonna get shipped home, you're gonna get court-martialed. Uh, those same people that failed time and time again, no accountability at those senior levels. They continue to fail up today. I guess it's shocking that it's not shocking. And the thing is, I try to apply Occam's razor to where it's like the simplest explanation is probably the most likely, but there is a lot of common sense that could have been had here. It didn't make sense even to the common man that we would do that. But I guess, and I, and I just asked uh, Chad Robichaud here uh, this recently, the same question, but it's like, if you had to kind of put yourself in that brain space of like, this is what I actually think happened, you know, get rid of whether or not it's categorically a conspiracy theory or something like that. Is there something nefarious going on that, you know, with the Biden administration, you know, clearing the way so that China could come in and get some mineral, mineral rights? Is it, you know, the fact that 20 years of contractors making money off of this war and other wars around the globe and they're setting us up for another big war later where they can make another payday? Like I think Dakota Meyer floated that uh, on the Joe Rogan experience, something similar to that. I mean, why did this actually happen? Because don't attribute to malice what can be contributed to ignorance. But my goodness, Jack, help me. Yeah, so I think that uh, that we may be giving those uh, in leadership positions, although they are uh, elected to represent us, they're not really our leaders, we elect them to represent our interests, uh, a little too much credit. Mm -hmm. I think uh, if you're to look at it, incompetence rules the day uh, and has for a very long time. So you add that incompetence uh, with one of the things you said there about contractors and you look at uh, who is in what position at what think tank and then where do they go in government after that or a lobbying firm after that. And you have this kind of uh, this circle or revolving door uh, of people that can then leave politics or leave these think tanks or leave these lobbying firms and end up on boards or leave the military, end up on boards uh, and that sort of a thing. I mean, the military industrial complex is a real thing and it does factor in. But when you talk about rushing to our death in Afghanistan, uh, I think it can more, most likely be contributed to extreme incompetence at our most senior levels, which uh, is almost more disheartening than if there was something even more nefarious behind it. It is very disheartening because I, I feel like you're right. I feel like if we were to take away some of the Hollywood and some of the ideas that come into our brain, that that makes a lot of sense. But it's those same individuals and that same administration that's trying to deal with the situation that's happening in Ukraine. And so there is a powder keg situation going over there right now. Again, uh, as I've said a lot of times on the show, I've watched and listened to and and read a whole lot about the situation in Ukraine and Russia. And I still don't feel like I have a good grasp as to the history, as to why we got to the position we're in now and why it's even happening. But I did find it interesting that all the, the talking heads and all the really, really smart people in Washington thought that this would never happen. Oh, it's just against Russian interests. And oh, this would never happen because of this or their reason or that reason. And then reality smacked them in the face and they're still reeling from the fact that this is going on. So just like I kind of gave you some space on Afghanistan, give me your thoughts on the situation 
situation with Russia and UK in Ukraine, which is obviously an ongoing situation. Well, those same incompetent uh, people at senior levels are the same ones dealing with this. Right. Uh, so you know, my second book, True Believer, was about Ukraine, about a Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, about uh, a uh, an attempted false flag operation to draw Russia into into Ukraine and then get another leader in place. So it was part of a uh, it was part of the plot back in 2019 when that one came out. So I did a lot of studying about Ukraine and Russia back then. And uh, in that study, in that research for that novel, it was quite apparent that uh, at some point in the not too distant future, uh, Russia was going to have to invade Ukraine because of the ethnic Russian population there and because of the Russian population that is in such steep decline within modern day Russia. Um, and other people have, have looked at that. I, I uh, studied Peter Zihan and uh, his book, The Accidental Superpower, as mm -hmm. part of the research for that novel. And uh, that's what really started. That's what really gave me the uh, uh, sparked the conspiracy for uh, True Believer was reading reading his work. And then I, I did a little more of a deep dive into it. But really, since the end of the Cold War, the Russian population has been on a very steep decline for a variety of of reasons, uh, so much so that by, if you you can you can chart that out and see how long that they can actually field an army based off that uh, off that that those demographics, um, and really what it said was twenty twenty two. Uh, was the year by which they would have to make this move uh, or sometime before before that. So from 2014 up until 2022. So it's not like people weren't thinking about this. It's that the wrong people uh, were or were not thinking about this. Uh, but then also, you know, it, it's easy to make snap judgments about things. And uh, for whatever reason, things are putting in, putting put into the categories of good, evil, black and white uh, when it comes to, to Ukraine and that situation. But uh, it is a little bit more complicated that with a history that goes back World War One, World War Two, uh, certainly the end of the Cold War. Uh, and for me, it just makes so much sense to go to the pages of history. Uh, there are lessons there and we can apply those going forward as wisdom. And we neglect to do that over and over and over again for, for whatever reason. So, uh, yeah, the Ukraine situation is certainly, certainly interesting. Uh, and there's a few more elements to it, I, I, I think, but they can be found once again in the pages of history. You can follow the trail all the way to where we are today. Well, it's like you're reading my mind because that was where I wanted to go next because I feel like just following you on Instagram, I get, you know, these nuggets of history that either I didn't know about or didn't really know the depth of the context in order to really understand the situation. So flow on that a little bit more about the understanding of history because we could literally spend the next two hours just talking about Russia and Ukraine, but we have some other important things to talk about today. But I feel like we we get shocked. So I'm 35 years old, so I'm, I'm right smack dab in the middle of the millennial age range. And there are a lot of millennials younger and older than me that feel like history started the day that they were born. And the new generation is just like that as well. And these things pop up and we're just shocked. But then it's like, you just have to peel back the onion of history just a little bit more to understand that this isn't unique at all. This is just the latest iteration of something that we've continually seen. So for you, why do you still find it so important to really look at history? And I guess, what would you suggest to me and the guys in our audience in terms of how we can you know, delve into history to where it doesn't just seem like it's this boring deluge of information that we can't use? Right. I think you need to look at it as a as a responsibility, responsibility uh, uh, as a citizen, 
uh, before just retweeting something that someone else tweets out there who also did not put the requisite time, energy and effort into studying the past, studying the history to find out why we have maybe, let's say, some of these rights or why certain things happened um, and learn from them. But I think that's the it's so hard today, uh, harder than previous generations, obviously, with TikTok brain. Uh, there's an yeah. article in Wall Street Journal about that recently, 15 seconds of essentially being able to uh, to focus on something. Um, so I think really, you know, for all the, the all the all the good and, and quote unquote bad that comes along with social media, uh, the worst part of it is that inability to focus on something in particular on history, because from the inception of this country, if we just take our country, if we don't even go to world history, but we just look at our country, really from the inception of this country up until today, people have sacrificed so that we could have these rights, these natural rights. And right now those are being, uh, there's a fight to take a lot of those rights away from uh, US citizens, uh, from segments of our society, from politicians, uh, for a variety of reasons. So whether we're talking about free speech, we're talking about the the inherent right to defend yourself, your family, your tribe, um, uh, these, these rights are being attacked and more so than in any other time. And our behaviors are also being essentially manipulated by social media companies. Um, and you know, obviously tech tech giants out there have a lot of power, a lot of information. Uh, they can influence behavior and make us want to buy something we didn't know we needed. Uh, well, mm. guess what? They can also do with that information. They can do more than just make you want to uh, buy a water bottle that you were talking about or looked up once on online. Um, so there's just so much power out there and it is concentrated at some very high levels and that power isn't just monetary anymore it is data it is information and that is really the value of that because you can manipulate now thoughts and behaviors so it's a it's a if you don't take the time to take a breath and go back into the pages of history to study some of these things and figure out why we have some of the rights that we do or why we're on the path that we're on as a country, or you go international and look at the Russia-Ukraine situation and figure out why uh, Russia and Ukraine are there, uh, and then apply those lessons going forward as wisdom. Uh, that's what we owe future generations. Otherwise, guess what's going to happen? Uh, well, Americans' sons and daughters are going to be back on the front lines fighting somewhere in the world because we didn't understand our history. Our leaders uh, did not, and our voters, uh, our citizens didn't put the time into studying that history so they could make informed decisions at the ballot box. And uh, I try to remain positive, but uh, it's, it's it's sometimes it can be sometimes it can be difficult with uh, with everything going on uh, today. But you know what? The answers are out there, and they're in the pages of history, which is why it's important not to have an electronic book, but physical books, uh, because those things, guess what? Touch of a button, and they're gone or manipulated as well. Hey, now don't make fun of me for reading my eBooks. It's because I got my iPad. I can take it with me everywhere, but we'll talk more about books here in just a second. But you brought up something that was interesting to me because it's hard for us to point at or even recognize the hypocrisy of the people that are elected politicians if we don't understand history. And this was actually something that was left over from our last podcast episode. I didn't actually get to ask you this, but you brought it up there a second ago when you were talking about the ability to our de to defend ourselves. You actually wrote a piece for Town Hall card called Our Obligation to Fight. This was back in 2020. I'm going to read this quote to you and then get a little bit more context to it. Politicians protected by 24-7 taxpayer-funded armed security details also ironically want to defund the police and take our guns, actions that are the height of hypocrisy. The rest of us need to stand ready as our own quick reaction force. We are dealing with the most sacred of all gifts, the gift of life. As citizens, it is our responsibility to protect ourselves and the lives of our loved ones. In fact, that is our primary obligation. 
Now, we've seen a lot of people on the Democratic side of the aisle that are now trying to undo the the, the narrative that they were anti-police and that they wanted to defund the police. And all of a sudden, they're gaslighting us and saying, no, we never wanted to defund the police. We wanted to refund the better parts of police or whatever nonsense that they're, they're, they're quoting out there. But we've seen record high uh, purchases of firearms, especially in these communities, especially with people of color that are in these communities that are suffering the most from the defund the police movement, all these different things. But give me a little bit more context, context on that, because that was a great article I hated that we didn't get to it the last time I had you on, but that goes into all of this. We don't understand even some of the history of the horrors of the early 20th century, where a lot of these population groups that were overtaken by these totalitarian regimes were unarmed, which led to the fact that they were able to be taken over so easily. Right. And so give me a little bit more context on that. Yeah, really. It's the first freedom, uh, the freedom to defend your life, the lives of your loved ones. Uh, and only for a very slim part of human history, have you been able to call 911 and Usually that is something that's going to happen uh, after an incident has already occurred. So police will come and take a report and uh, it'll be the aftermath of uh, not always, but most of the time. And uh, there's a but there is a group of people out there that want to take away your right to defend your family for some reason while they're surrounded by attack by protection that you pay for as a citizen. Like it's uh, it's absolutely and sometimes they pay for it. You know, sometimes donors pay for it, that sort of a thing. Sometimes it comes from campaigns and that sort of thing. But mayors and and uh, if you're talking about a in office politician, uh, a lot of the times it is uh, it is uh, the the police force and people that are on a special security detail and, and things like that. So and so they're surrounded by people with guns while at the same time calling and taking active steps to either make it harder for you to defend your life uh, or the lives of your your family members um, or take away that right entirely. And uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's a tough, (laughs) I don't know how they do it with a straight face. Uh, It's just, uh, yeah. And just, and for, for anyone that supports that while you're unarmed and you're supporting someone who uh, I just don't, I just, yeah, it's hard for me to even articulate it because it's so, crazy that you want to give more power to this person that's surrounded by people with guns protecting them yet uh and that's okay with you that you don't want to protect your own life you don't you don't value your own life enough to want to protect it you don't value your children's lives enough to want to protect them you don't value your spouse's life wife uh life enough to want to protect that that is your primary responsibility is doing those things and yet you vote for someone or you cheer someone on or donate to someone who just wants to take away well i mean sure that you can never defend yourself or uh or take away others rights to defend theirs their choice to defend theirs, uh, their lives and the lives of their loved ones. So it's, uh, it is our first freedom and that should be our primary responsibility as citizens, uh, is making sure that we are strong and we are self-reliant and, uh, we can defend that, uh, that gift of life. Well, Jack, we, we live in an outsourcing world too. Everything that we can outsource to another entity. No, no, no. You write my social media post. No, no, no. You cook my dinner and deliver it to my doorstep. The same thing is true with our violence. And most people don't like to think of it that way. They think we're outsourcing our protection, but we're outsourcing our violence to somebody else. So we're going to put hands and and nightsticks and whatever in, in the hands of police officers, but we don't want it in the hands of our neighbor right? Because that could just be too dangerous. Well, like, what if they get mad? What if they, they get to drinking and they decide they want to shoot up the neighborhood? So it's, it's that kind of like type of thinking, but the politicians that do it, it's a special kind of narcissism. It's different than the narcissist that loves looking at themselves in the mirror. 
they look at themselves in the mirror and they think I'm so much smarter than these adults. So whatever I say, it doesn't matter. There are no repercussions. And we can get into all the media and how they have a big input on that and how they have a big impact on that. But I do want to kind of get back to to the books and kind of get to uh, really the whole reason why you're kind of this this big superstar. I don't know if you know this, but you're super famous, Jack. And everybody knows you and loves you at this point. So I'm just going to keep greasing that wheel. But before we actually- that. Let me jump in with one thing on what you just said because it's so yeah. important. But it's uh, I think there's also there's a component of moral moral vanity to mm -hmm. it um, that uh, that it's hard, hard to place where that comes from or why that's important to certain segments of society. I mean, you can find out why politicians want to manipulate you because they want your vote. Um, and uh, of course, so they can stay in power. And somehow uh, the other thing about those politicians that uh, it's very interesting how those who are called to serve in the political realm uh, also seem to be very savvy investors. Mm. Uh, Isn't that, that interesting? That, yeah, there's that as well. So they want to, yeah, get in there, make some very savvy in investments, uh, and then at the same time take away your right to defend your life and the life of your, lives of your family members. So interesting. But okay, sorry, I just had it. Well, no, now you're starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist, right? We're gonna get we're gonna get canned over here, all right? So we're we're gonna do our best to bring it back to the stuff that we knew we were gonna be talking about. We got to talk oh, yeah. about the new book. It's gonna come in and uh, and, uh, and 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 earn their pay, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into the new book. I got to I just talk to you about something that I know has bugged you for a long time, but you're kind of helping to counteract this. The fact that men just don't read, right? Uh, men as a, as a group, as a homogenous group, American men, they don't buy books and they don't read books. I even had someone the other day, they said, hey, if you want this thing to really take off, you need to market it at wives because they're the ones that are going to buy it and demand that their husband do it or read it or, or absorb it or something like that. You had a different upbringing. You grew up, I, I believe it was your mother that was a librarian. And so you were reading constantly and that's something that you love. So I'm going to have to kind of ask you to pull yourself out of your own personality and your own personhood for a second, because reading is old hat for you. What do you have to say to men that think to themselves, I don't need to read a book. Like I've got a television or I don't need to read a book. You know, I, I read books in high school. I don't need that anymore. Why is it so important for men to continue to read? Well, I guess it depends on your, your definition of success, what a, uh, what a full life is, what it looks like, what a rich life is. And by rich, I certainly don't mean uh, monetarily so, um, but uh, living a richer, fuller life. Uh, and, and how are you going to do that? I guess if that's not important to you, continue to not read. Um, but if that is important to you, uh, then pick up a book, pick up a lot of books, start building that library. You don't even have to read all these books in your library, having them there so that you can reference them, go to a chapter, read that chapter, have it lead you somewhere else. Um, that, is, that is a foundation on which to build all else. And can you build a richer fuller life without reading? I'm sure. Um, but it, it, it will certainly be beneficial. I, I can't think of an in, a single instance where it would not be beneficial to, uh, to build a life on a foundation of reading and knowledge and therefore benefiting from the wisdom of others. There's, uh, and I'm not talking about tweets and Instagram posts and that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's not the same. It's going, having that deep thought, that quiet time to reflect, spending hours in the pages of a book, uh, something that interests you, uh, a part of history that interests you, uh, and just going into those pages because it'll make your life 100%. It, well, let's see, the best way to put it, it, it won't hurt you. How about that? Yeah. Let's start there. <laughs> and, and if you want it to, want it to help you uh, and allow you to build that, that foundation towards a richer, fuller life, then start building that library. 
Hey, I tell people all the time, it's a net positive, right? So there, there are times where it's like, okay, I don't have time to watch this entire show, but I can read this chapter. And the, it's these people that say they don't have enough time, but they just binge watched an entire show that had multiple seasons and every episode was an hour long. So it's like, you no, know, that's a choice of attention. You went in there and you got your, your brain and your eyes tickled a little bit. You got entertained and then you moved on, but it didn't make you any better. You can maybe win, you know, a, a trivia contest by saying what a character's name was, but it's not really developing you any deeper. So we got to yes. talk about the new book. Talking about the terminal list on Chris Pratt coming to Amazon Prime on July first. Hey. Unless we're talking about that, right? Uh, but interestingly enough, when you watch the uh, the opening uh, credits, uh, there'll be something in there that uh, we're just talking about. There'll be there'll be a book or two. Okay, sounds good. Well, we're going to get to the terminal list for Amazon Prime, but we got to get to this. This is in the blood. This is out this week, guys. If you're listening to this on time, it is over your right shoulder. This is a fifth novel in the James Reese series. Thanks again to you and your team for sending this my way, so I could get a sneak peek to it. But I told you this a while back, all right? And then you just kind of, you did your, you know, humble Jack Carr thing. Ha ha, thanks a lot. But I mean it. It seems like with every subsequent release, you seem to be getting better. Like, like, and you didn't suck to begin with. So you had The Terminalist and then True Believer and then Savage Son, which I know is a favorite for a lot of people, The Devil's Hand, and now In the Blood. Do you feel like you're getting better at this? Because like every time, I'm waiting for the stinker. Okay, so we're five novels in and I'm waiting for the one that's just like, uh, you know, it was a fine, but, it, you know, it's four out of five stars kind of a thing. Is there a stinker coming or are you just going to keep getting better at this? The goal, obviously, like with everything in life is to, to get better. So whether that's by by a degree or by a few degrees, um, it's to move the genre forward and to get better at my craft uh, individually. So that's uh, that's always been been the goal with each and every every book. It continues to, to be the goal. And uh, so people are saying about this one about in the blood that it's their it's their favorite thus far and when i started in the most it's certainly the most action-packed and that's not how i uh, initially sat down to write it that was not my intent it just naturally happened that way but it is certainly the most action-packed and uh it's so much fun and my brain has already shifted to the sixth one that i'm writing right now that i think is even going to outdo uh this one and everything that's that's come before just because of, of what I'm writing about and how I'm feeling about it and, and all the rest, not, not done yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. And, uh, yeah, I just love doing it and I want to get better every time. So I'm always, that's always at the forefront of my mind is getting a little bit better with each and every one and moving that genre a little bit forward as well. Well, and also you, you've got the pressure of now five novels that are going to be bestsellers that people are going to be telling their friends about and it's expanding your your base of people that are going to support you and so you kind of got that motivation to keep it going to keep the research going to write a little faster which is something i know you've talked about on other interviews and on your podcast when when and try to get a little bit tighter but for you know no spoilers here for anyone who has not been able to pick up the book and read it yet because this is being released on the day the book comes out but what can fans of the series expect from in the blood yeah, so this one's a sniper-centric novel of violent resolutions. So that's kind of what I had in my head throughout the entire writing process. And I had to figure out a way. I always wanted to write a sniper-centric novel, but I had to figure out a way to do it where it wasn't going to devolve into two snipers on opposite mountains glassing for each other or in two buildings glassing for each other, looking at the last moment where they find each other at the same time, and then they shoot, and one goes right through the scope and the other guy's brain. Like, that's been right. done. You know, so I, I had to figure out a way to write a sniper centric novel as a sniper myself, uh, bring that emotion, bring that feeling to it, bring that uh, that accuracy as far as technicality goes uh, to it, but also not fall into those tropes. And uh, so I, I love how I, I mean, I love the whole process. I love figuring things out. I love solving problems on the on the written page. And uh, and I loved how I, how I worked it out in this one. So it's uh, that's really the baseline. But then I also did a deep dive into because I wanted to juxtapose the old and the new. Uh, mm -hmm 
yeah. weave all that in there. So I did a lot of research into quantum computing, into artificial intelligence, into uh, mass data storage, into the surveillance of uh, U.S. citizens. So I went deep down that rabbit hole, just like I did with bioweapons for the devil's hand. Mm-hmm. To, did a lot of interviews, read a lot. And interestingly enough, when you're reading about quantum computing or an artificial intelligence uh, and and mass data storage and, and surveillance, you're already you're already you're already dated uh, because things are moving so yeah. quickly. Uh, so when I was reading Snowden's book, uh, of course, uh, but permanent record that's that's already like a decade. That information it's already it's already a decade old. Uh, there have been a lot of improvements over the last. 10 years uh, and improvements. I put that in quotation marks. But uh, interestingly enough, everybody that I that I interviewed who had a touch point with quantum computing and artificial intelligence uh, today said that they could tell me more, but it would put my book into the science fiction category. Uh, so and that's scary. So for people that read it uh, and read it with that in mind, yeah, it's uh, it, it's frightening. And the people that did read it and read those parts said it was scarier than the bioweapons research that I did and how I wrote about that in the devil's hand. Well, that's one thing I remember you talking about with the devil's hand and, and no spoilers for anyone that hasn't you know read that yet, which guys, that's, it's a year old, go get it and read it. What's wrong with you? But like, there were so many times in there where I'm like, is this real? Like, th- is this stuff actually happening? Do they actually have these, these weapons stored in these different places? And I think I forget exactly how you said it in another interview, but it was something along the lines of it's, you know, plausible enough to be, to be, to, you know, not go into the realm of science fiction or something like that. But then it also kind of, you know, people are kind of going with it and they're like, you know, James Reese is kind of turning into Superman at this point. Like, is he always going to be able to get out of these situations? But it really begs uh, the question that a lot of people have really asked you, which is spinoffs have to be coming. Right. There are probably going to be spinoffs about, you know, James Reese's father. And, you know, is James going to be having some kids that are going to be going down a similar path as daddy? So whenever you get asked that question, you answer it very diplomatically and you say, yeah, probably. But are we really going to expect to see in the near future some spinoffs from the main storyline of James Reese? I wouldn't say the near future, but it all depends on, you know, what that what's your definition of near is. What are we talking? Uh, There are things that I want to explore for sure. And I quite intentionally put information about Reese's family, multi-generational, about the Hastings family, multi-generational. So I could go back and explore those other characters and people I could ask that question quite a bit. People on social media uh, hit me up on it quite a bit uh, about exploring those things. And I would like to do that at some point. Uh, This is my year to get organized on uh, business front and organizationally here with uh, time to write and then time to do the business side and all the rest of it. Um, so so those things are in, in the works. But uh, right now, my focus is on book six. So take us through your writing process a little bit, because you said you're, you're trying to tighten things up because you spend a lot of time researching. So my understanding is you spend a lot of time researching and then you kind of, you know, tuck yourself away to do the writing, or is it more of an intermittent thing where you research a little bit and you write segments of the book and then you kind of start from your outline and build out from there? What, what's kind of your, your style and your process? Yeah, it's intermittent um, because as I write these chapters, uh, I might have uh, done a cursory a uh, bit of research on X, Y, or Z. And then when I actually get to that stage of the writing process, where I get to that point in the outline where now it's time to write about those things, well, now I got to go do a deep dive. And so so now I'm re- researching those things online, through books, through interviews. People are connecting me with different people out there that have touch points with whatever I'm researching. And from that, 
then that might change things up. What I learned, it might not be mm-hmm. what I had learned during that cursory research. Well, maybe there's a couple more factors that I can weave in there that now affect the book going forward, but also might have affected something that I've already written. So I got to go back and make that, make sure that everything lines up so it's uh, it's smooth as I as I uh, continue to work on this plot. But uh, process wise, it's been the same from the, the first book, and I'm not sure it'll always be this way, but everyone has been this way thus far to include the one I'm working on now. But it started with this one page executive summary, like a whether that's a paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, four paragraphs, but almost like the book jacket, something that would get you to buy it. And also for me to read that one page executive summary and say, you know what, I want to spend the next year of my life devoted to this story, to this topic, to this theme. Um, so really it's for both. It's for the reader in my head thinking, hey, would this excite someone enough to want to read this book? And then, hey, does it excite me enough to want to spend a year of my life dedicated to making this book the best it can possibly be? So I do that. And then I come up with the title because it's very important for me to have a title right off the bat. So it's not, it is not wasting bandwidth in my head. I'm not mm-hmm. typing away and thinking, oh man, I really got to figure out this title. Or what if I can't think of a good one. No, I always have a title right there. And then I have this theme, something, whether it's revenge for the first book, whether it's violent redemption for, for true believer or the dark side of man for the, the third book, um, or what the enemies learned by watching us on the field of battle for 20 years with uh, the devil's hand or this sniper centric novel, with violent resolutions or something. There's that one sentence, one word, phrase, whatever it is that guides me throughout the entire process. So when I have those three things, then I take that one page executive summary and I turn that into an outline. So beginning, middle, end. So I know where where I'm going and uh, fill that in as thoroughly as I can without it tripping me up without turning it into, oh, I ran into a block in part one here. How's he ever going to get out of this? Uh, And spending two weeks trying to figure it out. No, I'm going around, I'm going over, I'm going through. And I know that in the next year, as I'm working on this, I'll figure that out. I'm not not making decisions under fire anymore. Uh, I, I can make, I can sleep on it. For a couple nights if necessary hmm. uh, for a month for two um so i do that and then i get that outline to where i think it needs to be and of course that's subjective and then i start turning that into the book so that's how it's been so far it works for me and uh and yeah i love every part of that that's awesome I'm, i really appreciate you giving us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on that but let's go ahead and get into the, the thing that you teased up a little bit earlier and that is the terminalist series not just the book but the terminalist series that is going to be on amazon prime starring chris pratt got an a-lister and that is going to be launching in july of 2022 and so i'm an amazon amazon prime member like i've got that but i've never really had anything to watch on there and so it's like i'm really excited i know there's some good series on there guys i'm not hating but this is an incredible thing for you i remember whenever you first announced this i mean i was just overwhelmed I'm so happy for you that this was going to be happening and it wasn't going to be, you know, some D list thing. It's on Amazon prime and you know, you have Chris Pratt as a part of it, but I guess in your wildest dreams, cause you've wanted to be a writer for a long time, even before you became a seal. Did you ever think that, that your novels would, you know, be turned into a movie or into a TV series? Was that ever part of the plan? Yeah, I always thought that would be the case um, for whatever reason. I guess when you want to do something from when you're a little kid, it's like saying you want to be an astronaut and then never having anybody dissuade you. Or if they did, maybe that uh, that discouragement didn't really didn't really take root and you, you went and you did it. Uh, so wanting to do this from uh, my youngest days, uh, wanting to first serve my country in the military, specifically as a SEAL and then write thrillers. And then I was really training myself up for both of those uh, my whole life. And it was very... 
Um, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was training myself up to be a SEAL because that's fairly obvious. You're doing push-ups, you're sprinting, you're running, you're putting a ruck on, you're swimming, you're, th- you're reading books about military history, you're reading books about terrorism and special operations. Uh, when I got old enough, I was going to the range and I was shooting and I sought out uh, Vietnam era guys that really knew what they were doing with uh, with pistols, with rifles, with shotguns, and uh, did everything I possibly could to prepare myself to be a, the best operator I could possibly be one day, the best leader I could possibly be one day. But at the same time, I was reading books by Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, David Morrell, all these guys in the 80s whose protagonists, whose main characters had backgrounds that I wanted one day. So those guys had typically back in the 80s, it was uh, you had a Marine sniper from Vietnam. You had an Army Special Forces guy from Vietnam. You had a Navy SEAL from Vietnam. You had a CIA paramilitary guy from Vietnam. And then either they got out and did something and then were pulled into some sort of a conspiracy or they got out and went to work for the agency and were on some missions or whatever it, it might be. But as a kid growing up in the 80s, that was magic. That was magic to me. And so even though I didn't look at it as studying for my future profession as a writer, that's really what I was doing. Uh, And I started studying Joseph Campbell and Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Hero's Journey very early on back in 1988 when he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. And I've just always been that student, whether it's of warfare or of writing. And uh, and that it all kind of came together here uh, as I was getting out of the military. But I always thought, yeah, I'm going to be a SEAL. I'm going to serve my country. I'm going to do all these secret missions. That's what you think when you're a kid. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then I'm going to get out and write thrillers. And they're going to be at the top of the New York Times list. And then an A-list actor is going to option them. And they're going to be a big movie. And that's just what I thought. And so uh, to have that actually happening, I feel extremely fortunate. But I didn't waste any bandwidth worried about it not happening. I guess that's the that's the point. I just did it. Made the best book I possibly could. And then now we have this this series that I couldn't be more proud of. That's an incredible story of how you got there. Because when I was a little kid, I was hitting walk-off home runs in game seven of the World Series in my front yard. And damn it, I didn't make it there. So, you know, it's great that at least some kid in America was able to come map out their dream life and you're living it right now, which is amazing for you and your family. But take us through, because a lot of people know that Pris- Chris Pratt is now, you know, a part of what you have going on and part of the project. But a lot of people don't realize how early on in the project he became a part of it. They, they I mean, they weren't just doing an open casting call and Chris Pratt's like, oh yeah, hey, I'd like to do that. Thank you very much. Take us through how Chris Pratt got involved. Yeah. So as I was writing it, uh, it was before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Avengers, before Jurassic World, really before Chris's rise to, to A-list prominence. And he had been Andy Dwyer on uh, Parks and Rec, so a little overweight, lovable. Mm-hmm. And then he played a SEAL in Zero Dark Thirty, uh, the, the uh, movie about the Bin Laden raid. And so I saw that transformation. And that movie came out um, a little before I started writing the book, but uh, but I saw that transformation. I think I saw a couple articles with him in it. He seemed like a really great guy. And uh, but you know he wasn't the Chris Pratt we know today yet. But even as I started writing that first book, I thought this is this is the guy who will portray James Reese. And there's a difference between picturing James Reese as Chris Pratt. That's not what I did. I pictured Chris Pratt portraying him, bringing him to life on the screen. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a difference there, but, uh, but I didn't know I had a connection to Chris at all. No connections to Hollywood, no connections to, to Simon and Schuster or New York publishing at all. Um, but I didn't think I needed him at the time. I just was like, ah, I'm going to write this great book. Of course, Simon and Schuster is going to want it. Of course, Emily Bessler at Simon and Schuster is going to want it. Uh, Vince Flynn's editor. Um, that's who I want to be my editor. And then of course, Chris Pratt's going to do this. And then of course, Antoine Fuqua is going to direct. Uh, he did Training Day, Tears of the Sun, Magnificent Seven. Awesome, awesome guy. Um, and I thought that's who I want to direct. And Chris is who I want to star. And Emily, I want to be my editor at Simon & Schuster, editor publisher. And then I just typed away. I didn't worry about those things not happening. And then uh, 
book gets to Simon & Schuster, gets to Emily Bessler. Uh, she's my editor and publisher. But then right before the book comes out, in, so it came out in March of 2018, the first book. In November of 2017, so a few months before, I got a call from a buddy of mine in the SEAL teams who I hadn't talked to in five years. And he calls me out of the blue and, and says, hey, do you remember me? And of course I did. And then he said, uh, do you remember what you did for me in the SEAL teams? And I couldn't remember uh, at the time. And he said, well, you sat me down in your office. You talked to me about transitioning out. You found out I was getting out of the military. Uh, you introduced me to people in the private sector. And you're the only person that took the time and cared enough to sit down and talk to me about that. And I've never forgotten it. I always wanted to thank you. And I said, no problem, man. How's it going? And he said, it's going great, but I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in about five months or so. And uh, I have a galley copy, which is like an early reader's edition. I can send you kind of a rough draft. And he said, yeah, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, no problem. Who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. So uh, I sent it to my friend Jared Shaw, and he, he read it first just to make sure it wasn't garbage. Then he gave it to Chris. Chris read it in late December of 2017 and then called the next week and uh, wanted to option it before it even hit shelves. Uh, and at the same time, Antoine got it through another friend from the SEAL teams, and, uh, and he wanted it. So I had the director that I wanted and the A-list actor I wanted. Both wanted to do the project at the same time. And so Antoine called Chris and they said, hey, let's do this thing together. So now all three of us are executive producers on this. And uh, my friend Jared Shaw from the SEAL teams uh, is a producer. He's an advisor and he plays a character in the series and he just crushes. And uh, none of this would have happened without him, that's for sure. It sounds too good to be true. And you're starting to make me sad about all the things that haven't worked out for me in my life. Maybe I should just stop worrying. I'll do the Jack Carr way of doing things. But I, I guess for, for all of us that aren't you know familiar with you know movie sets or Hollywood TV sets or any of those types of things, describe what it was like being on set as an executive producer, you know, with the making of the series and all those different things. But also, you know, get into what fans of the novels can expect of the series. Cause I know you know this. Your fans are so rabid. And so if you change something to make it a little bit better for television that, you know, isn't as good as it maybe is in the book, people might respond negatively or you, you might change a character, a different haircut or something. People get their panties in a wad about even the smallest oh, yeah. of changes from their favorite book. So take us through all that. Yeah. So uh, I'll start with the last part of it in that there will, there are changes and uh, that's just how it, that's just how it goes. Um, but I knew that going in. Uh, and I usually they like to get rid of the author right away when they do a project like this because they don't want the author on set going, you ruined my vision. Right. Uh, so I like to get rid of the, uh, the author right away. But Chris and Antoine wanted me involved. And then the showrunner, David DiGilio, who's just incredible, they linked me up with him in December of 2019. And we had our first phone call together. And then we've been inseparable ever since. We were just talking earlier today. Uh, but we, there's not a day that's gone by since December of 2019 that we haven't talked about this project. Um, but uh, I think he was a little nervous at first because usually in Hollywood, like I said, they don't want the author around. And I just talked to him about all the things that uh, we just talked about here. Uh, talked about how I read all these books growing up and how First Blood, the book written in 19, published in 1972, is very different from the movie in 1983. Uh, both fantastic. Uh, so I got to talk about being a fan of, of books, obviously, of their adaptations, uh, having looked at what worked, what didn't for me as a fan. Um, and so I put him at ease and we've been inseparable ever since. But uh, we wrote the first pilot episode. And by we, I mean, he wrote it with me learning how to do that. 
and uh, getting to put my input in, of course. And he's just been so great throughout this whole process. But I learned a ton. Then he took it with Chris and Antoine and they went and shopped it around. And then Amazon ended up being the, the highest bidder and, and getting it. And then we put together all the other episodes, put together a writer's room and then started filming in last March. So March of 2021 and finished here in, in August of, of 2021. But uh, and then it goes into post-production. Hmm. Uh, so right now where we're just putting the final touches on the teaser and the trailer that are, are coming out soon. But uh, but it, it, there, are, there are changes. So if someone takes the book and just goes through and be like, oh, that's a change. Oh, that, right. no, that, that character wasn't in the book. Or you know what? That character is a conglomeration of two characters. Oh, nope. Right. Check. Uh, that's a pretty miserable way to go about it. But what was important to, to me and to Chris and Antoine was to keep that dark, visceral, violent, primal nature of the book, uh, keep it authentic, the tactics and the weapons handling, uh, keep the, get those emotions and the feelings behind these things um, all incorporated into not just a revenge thriller, but this is what David DeGilio brought to it also, but they added a psychological thriller component to it, which I think mm. works so well telling the story visually. Um, and so for fans of the book, there will be surprises because uh, it's not exactly the same, but I love the surprises. I and I, I really think we got it. Like uh, you, you could change, like there could have been a couple of things in there that that would have changed and it would have just destroyed the whole thing. But, uh, but we didn't, we got it done and we got it done in a way that I could not be more thrilled about. Uh, and then there's little Easter eggs in there too. So for something that maybe wasn't mm -hmm. in, really in the series, well, if you look close, there's like a little something for you, for that person that's like, oh, I can't believe this wasn't, oh, look what that is over in the corner there. So you have to watch close. Just like in my books, I put a a lot of little Easter egg things in there or a little a word or uh, an object that's just for maybe one or two other people on the planet. Yeah. Um, but we did that same thing with the series. And then also with the series, very unusual for Hollywood is that uh, there was no payment for for product placement, just like there's no no one pays me to put anything in the novels or on my gear list or on my Instagram or anything like that. Um, so we kept it authentic. The Amazon was so great about understanding how important gear and authenticity was to the books and that fan base. And so there's no product placement other than what is authentic and feels real um, and is is real for the book. Like there's some things that we couldn't get. Like we had a we had a, a plane that was ready to go exactly like the book. And at the last second, they found out we we're going to land it on a on a uh, dirt runway. And I uh, said, no. So we had to scramble at the last second and find another plane. But so it's close. But not exactly the same. But that's those things just just happen, and that's life. And then sometimes there's not the exact piece of kit, but there's hey, there's something you know similar or, or whatever. But for the most part, like the armor came to Utah and talked to Darcy Eccles and got an exact replica of this Eccles rifle that's in the the first uh, chapter, really the prologue of the first novel. Uh, a scope that Night Force doesn't even make anymore. Uh, so we had had those. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of things like that. The Winkler tomahawks, like all those things um, that are so important to the book and the character, as far as the character development goes and and the story itself uh are are in there and uh really i haven't seen uh, a story in hollywood that has taken that much care and totally discarded any sort of paid product placement well and the thing that i'm so glad about i'm glad it wasn't a movie because i think it would have been an amazing movie but there's so much more that you can do with a miniseries and so how many episodes is this going to be eight episodes okay so eight episodes so you can do an eight hour long movie and you can get so many more things in that as opposed to trying to get it all in, you know, two, two and a half hours. And I hate to even ask this question because this is just kind of how we're wired now. It's that focusing you were talking about earlier in the show, but I'm already curious 
about what happens after this, right? Because I know I'm going to go in July to my Amazon app and I'm going to watch, I'm basically going to binge watch all eight. And just like with everybody else, they don't realize it took years to get that season in their life. And all of a sudden they're like, well, when's season two? Well, when's whatever? But we do know there's subsequent books. It goes beyond the terminal list. And I guess I'll, I'll try to make my question uh, easier. And I know, you know, if people don't watch it, of course, they're not going to do a second one. But assuming this goes well, is it going to keep following your books? Is it going to go right into True Believer and then Savage Son and so on and so forth? Is it going to kind of splinter off from that? And then kind of the, the trajectory of the books is going to be different than the trajectory of, you know, what we see on the screen. Take me through that. Yeah, so we'll see. I think that ball is primarily in Chris Pratt's court. So uh, one, if he wants to do it, and then if he does want to do it, what other projects are out there? Uh, what are they they offering? Where are those taking place? Uh, so all sorts of factors like that go into it. And uh, and if it is a success, how uh, how uh, how willing will Amazon be to uh, try to uh, keep Chris from doing those other opportunities that he has and to keep him doing this? Um, so all sorts of sorts of factors. I know he, I know he wants to do it, um, but there's a lot of lot of factors there. So we'll so we shall see. I mean, he crushes it for people that are I mean, even today on, on Twitter. I saw someone that, that said something like, oh, I'm a little concerned about Chris Pratt being, uh, you know, being tough. He crushes like that is zero concern to me. Uh, I was not a concern to me before and it's certainly not a concern now that I see how Chris crushed it. Um, so it's, uh, it's fantastic. But also you asked me about what it was like to go on set. And yeah, uh, yeah. that was so cool walking on that set because it, it reminded me of a military operation. Um, you have craft food services because you got to feed the troops downrange. You got to feed all those 350 people that are making this, this film. Uh, you have an armorer. Just like in the SEAL team, you got to have somebody that you're looking back, checking those serial numbers, logging them back in. So same thing on set. Have an explosives guy because you're going to blow something up. You have to have that guy on set that does that. Well, in a SEAL team, you have your breacher. You have your explosives expert there. In a SEAL team, you have your commanding officer. That was Antoine Fuqua at the top. He's the commanding officer up there setting the tone strategically. And then you have Chris Pratt down here uh, as happens to be playing a troop commander, but that would be setting the tone tactically for the rest mm -hmm. of every, for everyone else on set. Um, so there's so there's a transportation person, just like there's a mobility uh, person in a SEAL platoon, uh, getting you to and from target and vehicles and helicopters, whatever it might be. Same thing on, um, on set. You have a transportation guy, mobility guy. So there are so many of the exact same roles that need to be filled on set as there are in a SEAL platoon, a SEAL team, SEAL troop, that sort of a thing. So that really stuck out to me. Uh, and then it was like a reunion when I got to that set for the first time because it's a seal centric episode the first one so we have seal buddies of mine playing seals and uh and it was fantastic to see everybody it was like a it was like a week-long reunion doing this one uh this one big scene in the uh in the first episode I'm very excited for, for this. And I was, like I told you, I was excited from the very beginning whenever there was an announcement that this was going to happen because whenever I'm reading through books, I never really think like, oh, this should be a movie. But whenever it happens, I'm either excited or disappointed. And to the Chris Pratt and maybe not being tough thing, I first knew about Chris Pratt on Everwood. That was a show on the WB, like you're a million early. years. You're early adopter. Yeah, like I was early. Like this was before Parks and Rec and all that. But one thing that I knew about Chris Pratt early on is this kid, you know, wrestled. I think he wrestled in high school and all that. And it's like, you know, not every wrestler on the planet is tough, but it's like when you're in shape and you have a wrestling background, like there's something about you because it's really, really hard to get through a wrestling practice in high school if you don't have some of that inner kind of like, screw you, I'm going to get through this. And so I have no, uh, you know, possible issues with him being 
being tough enough for this role. I'm just excited to see him in it. Uh, we're kind of winding down to the end here, but I do want to talk about your podcast. So, you know, since you got into writing and since you got into this project and everything, you have launched a podcast called Danger Close Beyond the Books with Jack Carr. And at first I thought it was just going to be you talking about your own books. And I was like, I don't know how long this is going to go, but I'm glad, you know, I'll be along for the ride. But you've had a lot of people on your podcast. You kind of allow them to take us behind the curtain about, you know, their history in the military or how they became a writer and all those great things. And guys, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check it out if you didn't know that the Danger Close podcast was out there. But I just have one question that I know it's always weird when you say, who's your favorite or who's your any of this? It's like picking your favorite kid. But as of right now, so two-part question. Who has been your most memorable guest so far? So their appearance on your show was the most memorable. And then in the future, who is somebody that you have not had on your show yet that you really would like to have on? Well, well uh, let Chris on talk about the the show, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's the one that immediately jumps to mind because I was just thinking about it today. Um, but of all the ones I've had on thus far, and interesting that you, you that you thought it was going to be me talking about my books. Uh, that's why I put the beyond the books in there. Right. Uh, right. Hoping that would uh, that would cue people off that hey, it's more than more than just the books. Uh, but I did it really for a couple couple reasons. Um, one, because it's a platform you couldn't have taken advantage of as an author thirty years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and I like to to try to look at the battle space and adapt and morph, look for gaps, capitalize on momentum. So I figured it was a it was a uh, a natural thing to do. And I'm talking to interesting people all the time anyway. So when I hit record and do that, so it started up with that. And then once it once, and I thought it was just gonna be very small and just kind of be something kind of fun to do. Um, but, uh, but it grew <laughs> very quickly. Uh, and it was a, a lot more than that right out of the gate. Um, but if everybody that I've had on thus far, gosh, I've had so many interesting people though. Um, uh, uh, gosh, there's a, a woman who's coming up this week who was in Nairobi in a terrorist. Uh, she was essentially in the terrorist attack that Christian mm-hmm. Craighead, SAS operator, went in and, and he started slaying bad guys uh, over there. And hope his book comes out here. And at some point, it's going through the review process with the what they call it, the Ministry of Defense over there in the right. UK. But uh, so I talked to her. Oh my gosh, it was incredible talking to her, just being in a room, thinking you're going to die, and uh, hearing footsteps get closer, hearing people get shot. Uh, seeing the carnage of an explosion after it goes off outside your window from an S vest, suicide vest. Um, so she, I mean, talking to her was just so, so inspiring. And that's, uh, that's coming up here shortly, but uh, gosh, I love each and every, every, every one. There's not one that I'm like, Oh man, why did we do that? Or uh, I just, it's really just me talking to talking to friends or people that I want to talk to. I never plan it out as a business or like, oh, I'm going to have to do this if I want to get some clicks or want to get some viewers or, like I've never, never done that. It's just like, hey, so-and-so has a book coming out. Hey, maybe they like to talk. That'd be cool. Um, so I, it, I approach it from that that perspective. But then I also put a lot of work into the research that before the podcast as well. So it is a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, yeah. uh, especially when you have multiple guests in a week and they all have a book coming out. Exactly. Uh, if it's a, a recurring character in fiction, you know, you don't have to really, you know, you can kind of read that pretty quick. But if it's uh, like a life story or if it's something um, that's uh, emotional, traumatic, uh, you know, yeah, I think you owe it to that person to read the read the book uh, ahead of time and really formulate some some thoughtful questions because they're taking time out of their day to, to, to spend it with you. Just like viewers, just like this, like you're providing something of value. You're doing an amazing job with your podcast. I love it. Um, and, uh, and you're providing something of value and people are trusting you with their time during the, during this. So you're putting the time into these questions and keeping the podcast moving and you're doing an awesome job at all, at all of it. So you're giving people value. Um, so that's my goal with each and every book, uh, with each and every guest on the podcast, with each and every post on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it, it might be, uh, as much thought, 
goes into each and every sentence that goes on Instagram as goes into a question from my podcast or goes into a sentence in the book because people are trusting me with that time. They're never going to get it back. Uh, so it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. Well, I want to give you this compliment because one thing that is very clear about your preparation for your show is that you do read the books of the people that come on your show because I get complimented like that. So I'll, I'll end an interview and, you know, I stop the recording and then whoever I'm talking to is like, Hey, you actually read my book. And it's so clear that you did. Thank you for doing that because, you know, you know, the publisher has to do people favors because they're lazy. They give them, you know, here inside your book, here's the 10 questions that you can ask them if you're so lazy and have no time to, to think of your own questions. And I purposely don't look at those questions, not because they're not valuable, but because I want to put myself in, in the mindset of one of my listeners. And I'm like, it is incumbent upon me to give the person that's on the other side of the interview my full time and attention. And if I don't read every word of their book, I'm not doing that. And it's like they're donating their time to me for free so that they can get to my audience. So I owe them and I owe the audience. So I absolutely want to give you that compliment. I'm so glad that you, that you think through it that way. Yeah. Sometimes those like I get those same books and uh, and I look at I look at those questions but they're never, they're, I've never been like, wow, that's a great question that they gave me. Right. I've never said that. I don't think I've ever asked a single question that comes off those sheets. I do read them because I'm fascinated by them because I know people get them with my books too and I don't even know what's, what's on them. Um, but uh, but I, I, I never use any of those questions either. They're never... They're never that insightful. Or well, they're, they're easy to ask. That's what the questions yeah. are. And so like, I like to ask the questions that are a little bit prying, make people yeah, a little yeah. bit uncomfortable. And like, if I'm fanboying a little bit too much, it makes me have to kind of, you know, swallow my pride and just say, Hey, let's say the thing as we go. Yeah. Well, I think they're made for AM radio, I think, because publishing houses in general are built around legacy media and really understanding mm. that space. They do a fantastic job with legacy media, particularly for the authors that really make the money for everybody else, like a Grisham or a Patterson or a King, you know, they kind of like the Avengers movies makes the money for all those movies that no one goes to see, but it might be fantastic. Um, so same thing in publishing and luckily, you know, mine have made their money back, made the investment back and, you know, uh, from right from the get go, but that's rare. That is rare. Um, but uh, yeah, that's but they do a very good job in that legacy space and which you know, AM radio is and AM radio is awesome. And you hit those local markets and, and it's awesome. But I think because you're doing those guys are doing five minutes, 10 minutes, right. 15 minutes with a commercial break uh, mm -hmm. and they have multiple people on that have multiple things to talk about. So I think a lot of the times those questions that you're getting inside of those books, I would guess, are kind of more geared for that mm -hmm. kind of AM radio 15 minute. Here you go. Boom, boom, boom. And the commercial is my guess. Well, I'm going to do my best AM radio impression here with our final segment of the show. It's called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? I think we did this the last time you were on here, but this is lightning round. So what I'm going to say is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said? And I'm going to fill in the blank. It could be something nice I've heard said about you, something mean I've heard said about you, but I just want to get your 30 second or less response to one of these questions. So you feel like you're up to it? Let's see. Uh, are we in person with this person that's saying these things and how big are they? Uh, so, uh, let's say it's me. I'm decent like, size, like, but I'm separate. Cauliflower ear, have UFC champion hat on? Hey, I got a little bit of cauliflower right there, but guess what? We are miles away right now. I'm in Oklahoma and you're in Utah. So we'll just assume this is a generic human being saying these things and you're in a good mood. How about that? Sounds good. Sounds okay. Good. Let's go to the first one here. What would you say to someone that said every seal that writes a book is violating the quiet professional moniker? Uh, yeah, I hear that uh, from time to time, obviously. Uh, hey, free country. What can you do? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to modify my behavior based on somebody who tweets something like that. Uh, 
I'm going to follow my passion in life. My passion is writing. I don't know about the other people. I can only speak for myself, but uh, I'm going to follow my passion in life and not be dissuaded from doing so because uh, someone thinks that uh, SEALs shouldn't be allowed to write books. All right. Fair enough. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't care if my kids read or not? Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's horrible. I can't even, uh, I think I would probably just shake my head and probably never have anything to do with that person ever again. Uh, yeah, that's that, that a person like that doesn't seem like they would add value, uh, and to anyone's life. It seems. Yeah. Uh, and you'd have to feel bad for their kids as well. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I hate all of the gear references in Jack Carr's books? <laughs> Lucky for them, <laughs> there are one or two other books out there that they can choose from. So uh, I would say if you didn't like the last one and didn't like the gear in the last one, do not read this next one. I try to I try to be as, as uh, open and uh, open as I can about the uh, those sorts of things. So uh, right. do not read my next book. Hey, of all the crap you get, that's the one that I, that I understand the least just as a little quick aside, like whenever I read your books and you give me the detail on the brand of the glove and the brand of the, you know, the, you know, fixed blade knife that's in their, their pocket or in, in their, you know, appendix carry position or whatever. Like, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm there now. Like, I know what that looks like. I know what that firearm feels like in my hand. Cause I've held it. So I love it. Keep doing it. Do it more. Make them even more angry. Yeah. It's, it would be very unnatural for me not to describe it uh, by name. Just, I couldn't, couldn't do it. It seems like, uh, if you didn't describe it by name, if you don't know what you're what you're doing, uh, or you're afraid you might gonna make a mistake, or maybe you googled Navy Seal knife and you put that in, you know, something that came from like 1995, you put it in your last last book and it didn't uh, didn't really describe a current character very well, or I don't know. I use these things as character development tools, so for me, they're all tools, and it's very natural to do. Because when I look at you, if I saw you walk onto a range or whatever else, I'd be like, oh, okay, I need a striker fire pistol, Kydex holster, okay. Mm shoes, cold pants. Okay. I got it. Like it tells me, tells me something or somebody walks on with a, with a leather holster and a cocked and locked 1911 and yep. uh, a leather belt. And maybe they're a little older and they got uh, you know, a, a trucker hat on like that tells me something a little bit about them as well. Maybe it says Vietnam veteran on it, whatever it is. Like it tells me something about them and their history, level of training, competency, all of those things. So it lets me make snap judgments on people based on a snapshot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's keep this lightning round going. Here we go with the next one. What would you say to someone that said, Jack Carr is a poor man's Tom Clancy? Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> That's not as big of a dig as people might think. That's a pretty darn good compliment if you think hey, about anytime it. Anytime someone's comparing you to Tom Clancy, hey, that's a good day. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to read, I have a television? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, this is once again, uh, different strokes, different folks, enjoy. All right. A few more here. What would you say to someone that said James Reese is starting to feel like Superman and more than a real man? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I don't get that very often. And it was something that I thought about uh, going into this because that does happen with recurring characters, especially if you're going on to book maybe 20, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, so I, I haven't heard that very often. But I think the way that I've uh, not really avoided it because I'm not really you know avoiding it. I'm just thinking about it is that James Reese is on a journey. We're all on a journey. It's not the same guy with the same skill set just dropped into a different situation every book that he has to figure out. He's he's questioning things. He's moving forward. He's adapting. He's evolving. Hopefully he's learning. Hopefully he's getting wiser. Um, he's not just stagnant um, at age 42, although I am going to age him very slowly. Um, mm -hmm. That's my plan anyway. Uh, but it's not just the same guy every book just dropped in a new situation. And now he has to go kill somebody in China or now Russia or now Africa or now Colombia or whatever it is. Right. Um, it's uh, 
so I think that's why it's, he's resonated is because, well, one of the reasons uh, is because we're all on a journey and hopefully we're all learning. Hopefully we're all adapting. Hopefully we're all getting better. Um, hopefully we're all getting wiser. Um, so for him to be on a journey as well throughout the books, I think uh, humanizes him more than characters that are compared to, to Superman. Absolutely. All right. A couple more left and then we'll get you out of here. What would you say to someone that said Jack Card needs to write a nonfiction book? Mm. Well, I'm not going to write a nonfiction book about like my time in the SEAL teams. Like there's plenty of books out there like that. Wonderful. But that's not my I didn't I didn't do anything you know near what some of these guys uh, have done that have, uh, have written about their their experiences. Um, I think those books are important because especially today, because kids mm. need heroes today. So that person in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school, there's so many inputs that are coming in uh, to have someone like read someone's story uh, about what they did in Iraq or Afghanistan uh, or a mission that they were on or whatever it might be that maybe inspires those kids to either join the military or to uh, to think maybe through some of those rights that we talked about earlier, why we have that what was sacrificed so that we do have uh, these rights in this country. So I think that there is uh, so much benefit and so much value to those books. Uh, they're also part of first person accounts that will be uh, going forward that historians will look at, uh, not as a single source for something, but as that person's perspective. Uh, so for people to get all crazy about those, those books, you know, Hey, okay, maybe spend your time doing <laughs> something more productive than worried about uh, what someone else wrote about their perspective. And a lot of times those books, I think are very therapeutic, like, like mine are, although my fiction, but it's uh, very therapeutic to, uh, to write. Um, uh, what was I, where did I even going with that? What was the question? Oh, I just asked, you know, what would you say to someone that said you need to write a nonfiction book? Because oh, yeah. I was wondering if you would write one about your time in the SEAL teams or if you found a pocket of history during your research for one of your novels that was so interesting that you decided to almost write like a, you know, a history, a historical account of this type of thing. I didn't know if that was in your wheelhouse. That is on my on my list, something like that. So uh, so we'll see if I if I get to it. That's part of getting more organized, like freeing up mm -hmm. my time to uh, explore other projects, getting more efficient, uh, that sort of a thing. So I am I definitely have a lot of ideas on the history front that I'd like to explore, but uh, I'm certainly not going to write about my time in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, you know, I talk about it as it comes up naturally and is appropriate mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing. But it's uh, it certainly informs my writing. That's that's for sure. But uh, I don't need to write a uh, there I was type of a book. Okay, gotcha. Well, last question of the day, Jack. What would you say to someone that said, Jack Carr is my favorite fiction writer alive? Oh, man. I Gosh, just thank you. Um, and that's really how I use social media for the most part is to, to say thank you. I still try to, at night when my wife's sleeping next to me, I try to like go and hit that heart button for people that yeah. have you know said, hey, I, I got, the, got the book. I loved it. Or I told a friend. I try to thank them uh, still and say uh, it, you know, it's getting harder and harder to do that. But I sincerely appreciate everybody who took a risk on me as a new author and then told a friend, uh, whether that was uh, around a water cooler or a smoke break or whether it was on social channels and uh, whether they had one follower, two followers or 35 million or anything in between. Uh, I sincerely appreciate each and every person that uh, that has done that. And uh, it just means means the world to me. Well, for my money, it's you and Steven Pressfield. Y'all are my two guys to where I, for a guy that reads, I mean, last year I read, I think 45 books, which is a lot nice. more than some people, but not quite as many as another people. Right. Like I think two or three of those were fiction and one was from you and one was from Pressfield. And so that's, that's kind of like my, my niche there. So I can always make time for a Jack Carr novel, but Jack, I appreciate you letting us get into all that detail, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I sincerely appreciate that. That's some rare air up there with Stephen Pressfield. He's uh, he's a fantastic, uh, obviously, author and then human being as well. Absolutely. Well, Jack Carr, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. No, thank you for having me. You take care out there.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Jack Carr. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to where you can go buy your copy of In the Blood. Also, I've got a link to Jack's website. So if you want to link to his social or you know any of his stuff for his podcast or all that, you can find all of that there. I've also got a link to his first appearance on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. That was episode 168. And also the article that we're talking about there in the episode from Town Hall called our obligation to fight. That is in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can also follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.